This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Hi, I'm Jesse. And I, Gentle Readers, am Mr. Weimer. <laughs> Hello, and I am Misa. Gentle <laughs> listeners. <laughs> um... All right, we're going to talk about Neverwhere, a novel by Neil Gaiman based on a television series uh, that he he wrote uh, and co-created with Lenny Henry. Uh, you guys know who Lenny Henry is? Besides no. this, I do not know, so tell us. Okay, well, he, he's a comedian um, uh, out of the UK, uh, very funny. He had a TV show called Chef, uh, where he played an egotistical chef, Um and uh, that's basically all I know about him, other than he's a really good actor. Um, hmm. And uh, apparently this was his idea. Uh, the premise was his idea. Basically, tribes of uh, homeless people in London. And Neil Gaiman thought about it, and uh, they co-developed it as a TV show. And I saw the TV show first, because I think the TV show came out uh, at the same time as the book, but the book was a... Um, it was uh, sort of an afterthought after the TV show, in a certain mm-hmm. sense. Mm-hmm. Um, when did you guys see this show for the first time? Uh, I read the book first, mm-hmm. um, and then saw the show, then read the book again, like a little sandwich. <laughs> oh, so that was recently then, I take it. Yeah, yeah. Mm. yeah. The, the first time I read the book was a, a, a couple of years ago, and uh, this actually... One of my friends, they, you know, when they say, what book, book would you take to a desert island mm-hmm. if it's the last book you ever have in your life? And this is her book, this one. Wow. Yeah. Wow. I, I remember yeah. seeing the TV show back in the 90s. They broadcast mm-hmm. it on a local television show. So oh, this is interesting. I mean, I had not really heard of Neil Gaiman at that point because I had not gotten into Sandman. So I was like, oh, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. I didn't actually read the book itself to some years later. It's like, oh, there's a book out of the TV that he made out of the TV show. How that's interesting. That's not the way that things usually run. Yeah, and backwards. I, and I'll go read the book, and and that was that was good and fine. And I had not thought a lot about Neverwhere. I mean, it's always been in the back of my mind until some years later. It's like, oh, box set on sale. I'll grab that and rewatch the mm-hmm. show. Like, oh, this is really good. I like this. Mm-hmm. And, but I had not mm-hmm. actually touched the actual book again until until this last week for the podcast to to fall back fall back into London below once more in a full and visceral way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you you uh, got a chance to hear the audio drama that came much later than the book and the and the TV show as well. I I, I had bought the audio drama because it was an audible sale some years ago. But I had not listened to it. Wow. I, uh, because wow. because I got a ton of stuff in my in my in my uh or I I mean guys you know I buy books ebooks and stuff fa- faster than I can even I can listen to them mm-hmm. and, and, and consume them so so yes yeah, so I had this thing sitting in my audio in my audible box for eternity it's like so when I went to go uh, it's like so I should listen to the audio drama too like oh you already bought it. like I did oh I did and so I was like okay I will listen to, so on heels of listen listening to the book like i will listen to the audio drama at last and since i did have the uh the box set of the tv show i 
even though my poor little TV is dying. It, Aww, it, it, right. it, it managed to work long enough. It's okay. You just flush it down the toilet and it'll get a new life in the yes, world below. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the, the sewer folk might be able to make use of it. <laughs> but so then I rewatched the, the original TV show where it all began for me, as it were. So I, I've consumed a lot of Neverwhere the last week. Yeah. And mm-hmm. uh, did you guys get a chance to look at the comic book adaptation? I hadn't seen that before I found it. Um, no, I didn't, I didn't open it. it. Oh, it's beautiful. Beautiful I, illustrations. I, I only uh-huh. got to glimpse a little bit of it. I didn't have the time to sit down and read all the issues, sadly and tragically. Mm-hmm. Nine nine issues uh, series um, illustrated by Glenn Fabry, who um, is more famous for Preacher. I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't even realize they had done an adaptation of the comic book. Um, I guess uh, Neil Gaiman didn't write the comic book, so it's an adaptation of his novel um, really? and he's a comics guy yeah. but he did do and it was for vertigo which was his his bailiwick right mm-hmm. um sandman was in vertigo dc vertigo and um so he I, I don't think he had a lot to do with it and it's quite different uh door um has a a key hole on over her eye it's quite distinctive and if you, I, I probably sent the covers to you guys on Twitter um, to have a look at, and uh, it, it it's just a completely different vision than what you see in the television show, which I think is pretty terrific. Mm-hmm. Um, even though it's shot on videotape, which is insane, um, I, I it's very nostalgic for me because it reminds me of all those Doctor Who episodes with. Uh, it, it, yeah, especially when we get to the beast. crappy lighting and yeah, when we get to the beast and the. In the in the labyrinth, it's definitely Doctor Who level, early Doctor Who <laughs> levels of uh, very high quality. Effects. So and and the acting is insanely awesome and yeah. Oh, oh I, I'm certain. For example, that I mean, there was a few years ago when they were deciding who was going to be the eleventh Doctor. There was a boomlet of hope that Patterson Joseph, who plays the Marquis in the TV show, would be the person they'd pick mm. because oh, yeah. yeah, because I think he. Would, I mean, based on his performance here alone, I think he would have been an excellent choice. Okay. Yeah, he's terrific. I, I don't know what else I've seen him in, but um, he's he's he steals the show as far as I'm concerned in in the book and in uh, in the, the show. And and he, I would say that his character is based on uh, Lenny Henry a little bit, just because um, I've seen Lenny Henry's. He's got sort of this manic. Uh, and he's got this a very similar accent. I guess they're all English. It's kind of hard to tell. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, and Mr. Croup and Mr. Vandemar are terrific. In yeah, they're the, fantastic. I mean, this is... Uh, I'm going to work really hard to say some bad things about Neverwhere, okay? Uh, the very first thing I'm going to say bad about Neverwhere is I, I was thinking like, okay, here's what here's what's wrong with Neverwhere. It's a children's book for adults. And not in even the same way as, uh, I guess, Harry Potter is a children's book for adults. Um, and I was thinking that that's actually true about pretty much everything uh, Neil Gaiman writes. Mm-hmm. Um, it, what I, re- I think when I was talking to you, Misa, about the idea of doing a show on this, um, I was telling it to you on the idea that it's, a, it's all a metaphor for uh, homelessness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which I think it is. Oh, yeah. However... I don't think it deals with the issue in the way that 
Jesse would like. You know, he wants to tackle it and think about it and uh, say, you know, criticize capitalism in a great way. I think that all those elements are are here, right? Mr. Stockton is a sort of a character and, and Richard's career as a stockbroker or whatever he is, securities analyst. Yeah. Um, there should be a, a, a heavy critique here, but it's not a heavy critique. <laughs> you know, I know that it's a metaphor for homelessness, but it also seemed to me to be a metaphor for for inside, going inside yourself. Like yep. you're outside and you're inside. So in, in that way, it, it, it dug kind of deeper. I guess. And, and, and of course, I completely agree with you. But I'm looking for a critique. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> and uh, that's about, uh, I mean, why, uh, is this the greatest novel ever written? No, but it's damn good. It's real damn good. Mm-hmm. I really, like, I, I had no idea that the TV show came first. And mm-hmm. um, so when I went back to see the TV show, it, it was thin because I because I, I was so entrenched with with this level of writing and yeah, character it's a sketch, right it's a sketch yeah and it was like it was like i was like oh it's a sketch but it's because i saw it backwards yeah that's right i i mean in some, in some cases i think the tv show in many respects is enough and the, the 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 full cast drama is based on the tv show not on the novel if you noticed with with, with just a couple small little changes to the uh to the TV show and one interesting little bit at the very beginning I want to talk about in a moment, but yeah, so it's like, so, so the novel is really an expansion of the TV show. Sometimes I don't think that expansion is actually needed. I think uh, suggesting rather than actually explicitly telling is sometimes better. And I think given Gaiman's writing, I think when he goes spare, he goes spare better than he goes full flesh, Mm -hmm. but that's just my personal, uh, reaction to Gaiman's style and writing. I think he does better at at short at slightly shorter lengths than at longer lengths. Huh. He That'd reminds me so much oh. of Dickens and and that like depth of character and description. Um which I know some people really like and some people go, give me a break. <laughs> Before we go too far away from uh the the different media, I wanna make sure we talk about the the uh, this is here comes the pressure, Misa. The illustrated, new illustrated edition that kind of prompted uh, me to think about doing a show on this. I get a lot of email from publishers Uh and authors trying to get me to do shows about whatever thing they're selling. Um, And I got one from uh, the publisher, the new uh, publisher for um, the illustrated edition, William Morrow, HarperCollins. It's all one big company now, I guess. Uh, Illustrated by Chris Riddell. Mm-hmm. And uh, they asked me if I want a copy. Said sure, and I said, uh, and send one to my friend Misa. They sent one to you. <laughs> they didn't send one to me. Um, and I, when I asked about this, uh, they said, "Oh, we have trouble sending things overseas." And I'm like, "I'm in Canada, and so is she." <laughs> and the funny thing is, I got mine within a day. Oh yeah, yeah, it was really fast. Yeah, uh, it was. So- it was en route to you, and they diverted it to me. I guess. No, no, we. I asked them to send to you, uh, but who knows what happens. You know, the publicists are not in the shipping department. So um, what's this book look like on the inside? How how many illustrations are there? I, I, I can only see the cover. 
there's illustrations um, throughout, like not on every page, but on, on a lot of pages. And it's black and white line drawings. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes you'll get a, a full page and sometimes you'll just get a, a rat running down the side. And you'll get like, twi- tw- you know, um, um, long, skinny characters, like big, long noses or, or just an eye or a tw- uh, like a, 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 br- a branch twining through the pages. So mm-hmm. it, it's like it's grabbing you down and taking you down into it. Um, nice. It's it's really quite beautiful. There's um, and it, and and again, all the visuals are so different from the show. Like the angel is this androgynous, gorgeous being, and mm-hmm. and door is is like a child. Um, is that door on the cover? I don't. No, I guess it it must be leggings. Yeah, it must be door. Yeah. Yeah. Or it could be anesthesia, which would be a weird choice. Um, No, I think it must be door. Yeah, I was just thinking. Although anesthesia anesthesia is kind of a parallel character. There's a bunch of parallel characters in here. Um, You know, uh, characters who travel together and travel apart. Um, how many how many illustrations do you think? It's packed. It's packed. Okay. Um, but 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 again, it, it also reminds me of an illustrated Dickens book too. Like you know those like uh-huh. black and white line line drawings, and it's it's got that sort of old worldness about it. I like that. I, I'm I'm a big fan of illustrated books. I, I mean that's if they just said you know we have the new. A preferred text or whatever. I'd like. I don't care. <laughs> I wouldn't. Well, I'm, I just opened up to a, 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 a random page, and at the at the on the top of the page, it's just a, a page. You've got the eyes and forehead of somebody, and then down one side, there's one of his arms, and down the other side, there's another arm, and and at the bottom, there's like the very beginning of a shirt. Like it's it's entwined. Uh, maybe I'll get you to uh, to take a photo, and we'll put it up uh, in yeah, the show notes. I'm curious. Yeah, I, I I'm a sucker that. for illustrated versions. I I keep buying copies of books that I already have the book. I just don't have the illustrations, you know. Yeah. This is kind of crazy. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, well, I'm... You know where uh, your book is, Jesse? Where's that? Oh. It fell through the cracks. Oh, right. yep. The the, the Surafoak habit. Or maybe... Oh, no, no, no. Actually, no, no. Actually, Surafoak habit. The, um, Lord Exeter has it. And all the lost and forgotten things in his little library. That's where the book is. So oh, I was hoping to get Mr. Jim Moon on. I, I didn't think of it until deep into the book. Um, and one of the reasons I was hoping to do that is because I'm seeing all sorts of uh, allusions to semi-mythical uh, literary stuff. And I know Neil Gaiman is obsessed with that, obviously. <laughs> if you read any of his stuff, it's all referencing... Uh, Older materials, especially literary works. One of his um, novels is um, The Graveyard Book. Um, again, a, a, an adult book for children or a children's book for adults. I think it's a children's book for adults because kids can read it. I've read it with my students and adults can read it. And that's illustrated inside. Mm-hmm. You, you um, know, I, I read one of his favorite books was, um, well, other than Lord of the Rings, Alice in Wonderland, which is also what you're talking about. Uh, that's referenced in here, sure. Yeah. 
But I mean, like in terms of a, a kid's book that adults it's illustrated, a hundred percent. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Good point. Um, so uh, Coraline uh, a great is book. a great book, and I read it with my students, young kids. They loved it. I loved it as an adult. I one loved my it. Friends, grizzled, grizzled middle-aged guy. <laughs> oh, it's a great book. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> it's very sort of funny. Who uh, who doesn't enjoy Neil Gaiman is uh, like I don't I don't know. And the people are super passionate about him. I have a friend of mine, his wife, you know, she has like Neil Gaiman tattoos and stuff like that. Really? Everything Neil Gaiman. And we have nothing in common. She and I, like she thinks I'm an idiot or something. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) She's like shaking her head every time I say anything. And, and, but we completely agree. Neil Gaiman is awesome. Um, so we can, you know, that sometimes when they line up to, for his autograph, they want a tattoo. Yes, it's crazy. It's, it's crazy. crazy. But he speaks to people in a way that very few authors do. Um, and I, I was just going to point out that Coraline is not, you know, it's not just a poof out of nowhere. It's based, I think, uh, on a, I, I'm sure I read this somewhere, and that's why I know, on a short story, uh, a fairy tale called The New Mother which is incredibly bizarre at the ending. And I did a podcast on it years ago because I read it after reading Coraline and I was like, wow, this is powerful. And um, he was, it was powerful, I guess when he read it. And so he, he did something with it. This book is, um, it it, it was curious. Another criticism I can make about it is why is it called Neverwhere? Oh, I have an answer for that. Oh, please. You have an answer. Uh, I could make some guesses, but no, I don't have a good I, answer. Yeah, I have guesses so, too. So go ahead, Misa. So I Google, like I, I didn't Google. I knew what everywhere meant, but I just so I went to the dig. Ever, everywhere is all places or directions. Nowhere, not in any place or any direction. So I Googled neverwhere, and the Urban Dictionary says mm. um, neverwhere, physical place that has therefore never existed in time. Hmm, that's a pretty good guess. That's I, pretty good. Yeah, that's pretty good. Um, it doesn't, I, I mean, if you, if you were going based on the text alone, you say, what are you going to call this? I mean, I would say, or I would say it'd have to be London, uh, below or something mm-hmm. like that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then you could uh, unfortunately get a sequel, London above London, London beside, right. All that <laughs> stuff. But, um, you know, London yonder or whatever it is, um, it doesn't really Need the title Neverwhere. However, the title is excellent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's got that fairy tale fantasy Very sort good. of title mm-hmm. to to do. It's like, where is Neverwhere? Let's find out. Let's read. Yeah. yeah. And of course, he did that with another book called Stardust. That's right? a great book yep. too. Yeah, and uh, th- that's it's it's kind of funny. You can see how everything in his his uh, writing is very reflective of. You know, gods show up all the time. Angels show up all the time. Yeah. Um, Pixie-like elfin girls show up all the time. Um, it, uh, you know, killers with knives show up all the time. Um, another one, the Graveyard Book, um, uh, based on the Jungle Book, right? Um, same premise, but instead of being raised by uh, jungle animals, he's raised by ghosts and werewolves and zombies. And such. Uh, 
it, it it starts with a murder of a family and with a knife right there was a knife in the darkness is like the first line or something um and then the baby escapes the the murderous rampage that kills the entire family which is the backstory of this book so yeah. when you're reading the old game and you sort of get the same stuff in a different package i um, i read um uh, a, a recent blog post of Neil's, mm-hmm. and this has got nothing to do with this book. He was he was actually writing about marriage, but what he said was, the world out there is complicated, and there are beasts in the night, and delight and pain. And the only thing that makes it okay sometimes is to reach out a hand in the darkness and find another hand to squeeze and not be alone. Which I thought that pretty much sums him up. That's yeah. uh, I think that's in this book too, right? Uh, that happens a couple of times. Mm-hmm. Where he he's um, unconscious and holding hands and all that stuff. I, I, I think it goes even deeper and more fundamental than that because mm-hmm. I mean I mean consider how London Below works. So Richard rescues Dor. He he finds the marquee. They they leave him and then suddenly Richard is an unperson and cannot be seen by anybody. He's utterly yep. cut off and and his greatest efforts to try to get this get to have somebody see him only last for a few seconds and then they forget about him again. I mean, back, back when I watched the show for the first time and when I reread and when I read the book, I reread this now. Um, I mean, my own insecurities about social interactions and people <laughs> knowing him and seeing me, I mean, Richard's plight when he's, when no one can see him and he feels absolutely caught up by everyone, that kind of, hit me really in the feels it's like oh god i remember all again yeah how i really felt for richard because it's like it's like a fear that i have that like nobody gives a damn if i live or die it's like mm-hmm. so i think that's what all the people lining in up for tattoos are are responding to too you know yeah i think so too or to, or they're not all tattoos <laughs> there are a lot of tattoos yeah. the game. There's, there's <laughs> a lot of tattoos so yeah so yeah, I mean, he ta- he taps into fundamental fears of mine in a way that not a lot of authors can manage, and because he's working with really deep, deep and true mythic social stuff here, and he knows what he's doing with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I I can't um, I can't say enough good things about this book, so I, I'm trying to. Uh, Avoid just g- making a gush. No fest. more gushing. Well, well yeah. Well, no, 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 no. You're allowed to gush. I'm just like, okay. I'm thinking, yeah. you know, little. this is he, what, what I like about it is I, like I was thinking, ah, you know what I like about this book while I'm reading it? It's the beginning. It's so good. And then, yeah. And then I'm like, no, damn, the ending's good, too. <laughs> <laughs> there's like nothing bad to say about it uh, because there's so much that really works um the one of the things that i will point out is that um this is a very uh hp lovecraft book in a, s- a certain sense there's a story um uh i want to say the white ship but no that's not the name of cellophaeus is it um in which a character named uh Karanis? yeah king yeah, Karanis, that, right yeah yeah that's cellophaeus you know cellophaeus yeah right um, where a basically a wealthy person, or at least a well-to-do person, uh, sort of loses money and ends up living in a crappy apartment, and then uh, loses his crappy apartment and 
ends up a homeless person and uh, ends up dead at the end of the story. But his spirit is alive in the dreamlands, right? Um, this is, uh, is a story about homelessness and sort of uh, yeah disconnection from reality. And that sticks with us right to the end. I love that the doubt and the and the, the ordeal that he goes through the trial yes is mm-hmm. i mean there's a there's a subversive reading of this that is in the text right he's and, not and, it's not like i'm going against it i'm going with it and yet and, it's still and, hopeful and even more so than the text and the novel in the tv show where we, mm-hmm. where, where we get to see those images of him being on that train platform talking to himself dirty ragged I mean, mm-hmm. I mean, the TV show is making the the subtext and the alternate reading explicit. You can totally take this as he's had a mental breakdown and he's cracked and yeah. And mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, his, his his ordeal is a brief rise towards back towards reality where he's realizing that like, he has really gone off the edge. And you could read every event that's happened up to this point is being basically in his head. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and and again the. The whole offing oneself and suicide and just and ending the pain is again potent stuff that he's working with and to hit the reader right in, right where it hurts and it does. I almost feel like uh, if they tried to film it again today, you know, as a TV show, mm-hmm. there's no way that they would let uh, that be filmed in the underground. Because they've got these signs that say, jump onto the tracks, basically. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, we're too sensitive today. We're too worried. And and apparently, uh, when Lenny Henry was talking about it with with Neil Gaiman, he was saying it, it sounds quite dangerous. It's going to romanticize homelessness. Um, and so Neil Gaiman was worried about that. Um, and it does romanticize homelessness. Uh, unfortunately, um, what you find out if you've ever gone camping or, <laughs> yeah. you know, you've spent a couple hours, um, without a bed when you needed one, uh, there's no romance in homelessness, um, in reality, right? You want to get chucked out of, uh, out of the sense of romance, uh, just try sleeping on the street for a couple hours, right? It's not going to make you, uh, very, ro- feel very romantic about the lifestyle. It, it may be romantic in retrospect. It may be romantic uh, in the in the theoretical, but the the cold and the pain and the uh, noise and the disrespect and the lack of attention, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, what's it's it, it, what's kind of cool and kind of uncool about <laughs> about that awesome beginning um, is that it it is a metaphor for the actual treatment of homeless people and i've talked with mice off air about um my problem with um giving to homeless people my my big problem in life is i'm kind of too empathetic and also i have to it sounds like i'm bragging or something it's actually it is an issue for me that i worry that i like i'm too much of a pushover when it comes to um people's feelings so i have to have all sorts of defenses built up and this isn't from, this isn't from like you know, I just want to keep my money, <laughs> which is a thing. I do want to not be homeless, right? 
it's uh, when I was when I was younger, I would uh, I was like, that guy has a terrible life. How can I help him? And I would spend time trying to, you know, help solve problems. And what I realized is it's very, very hard. It's very, very hard, not just because, you know, they're they're, uh, you know, short of money, but it's very, very hard because they're people. And people are strong, even when they're strong in the wrong ways. They're strong-willed. They don't want to be manipulated by other people. Um, they want to do uh, what they think is right. And that's not what you think is right, necessarily. And so um, if, you, if you spend time with people who are homeless, what you often find is there is often a problem, a problem that you can't easily fix. A problem that is not even really fixable by family members who are very sympathetic. Um, homeless people end up homeless because of the way our reality works, not because, um, you know, a failure on one little thing. It's many, many kinds of failures. And uh, so the reaction of, of uh, Jessica to doors corpse or body lying there bleeding mm -hmm. um is fascinating to me because it's sort of a summary of a, of some people's reactions and yet you know when i'm walking in the in the city and i see a homeless person um i suffer the same kinds of problems that many people do one of them is you worry that you're going to get taken you know what I mean? As in cheated? Yeah. Because not everybody who is homeless is homeless. And she says that explicitly, and it's a horrible thing to say, right? They mm -hmm. all have homes, really. She says, I think it's in one of the versions, uh, maybe it's the, the television show. They all have homes, really. She's making a, a claim that there's nobody who's actually homeless, right? And that's true that some people are just kids who are, you know, they actually do have homes and they want extra money so they can go to a movie or get some cigarettes or whatever it is. And then there's other folks who are actually uh, homeless and actually do rely on generosity of strangers for their income. And that's really scary and hard to deal with. And, and this book doesn't quite address that. But... What happens if you do become kind of sympathetic, like Richard, right, is you can end up losing everything, right? <laughs> Depends on how sympathetic you are. Uh, exactly, exactly. And obviously, you know, what, what's so nice about the, the long version, the version we see in the book, mm -hmm. is that Jessica is not a monster, right? We find out she, yeah, she's got maybe some misplaced priorities, um, she's interested in the wrong things, but she's not an evil person. She's not an evil person, but no, everybody that passes by a homeless person and says, I'm not going to give because they're going to buy a drink or for whatever, they're not bad people either. Not necessarily. But, that's right. But that doesn't yeah. mean that they're like e exemplars of humanity either. It's true. It's true. And that's why it's so such a hugely complex issue. It is. I was there. Was this, there's this. There's this homeless woman here where I live, and, and, and I live in a small 
city north of Toronto called Aurora. And, and there's this one woman, and, and she, she pushes all her stuff around in a shopping cart. She's covered in bags, 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 bags. And um, and one day I saw her, like, far away. It, it, it takes 15 minutes to get to where I saw her by car. And she only ever I only ever see her pushing the shop. And she was, it was hot, it was boiling hot outside. And she was just sitting in front of a gas station with her shopping cart and, and all of her bags and everything. And I, I was like, oh, my God, how did she get there? What's going on? So I pulled into the gas station and I just bought a sandwich because I, I thought she's starving here. Mm. And so I went out there to give her this sandwich and she said, no, thank you. I'm fine. Like, you just don't know. Exactly. Exactly. And when you do get to know, you find out it's not it's not just one thing. So. Uh, one of the, one of the things that comes up with homelessness is it's just housing costs, right? Like Vancouver and I, I believe Toronto as well. The housing costs are insane. Stupid. Right? Yeah. And and one way to not be able to uh, have a home is to not be able to afford housing, or or even be able to find housing. So if you have a pet, if you have uh, too many uh, kids, or you smoke. Or you have, you know, bad, um, bad uh, references, right? Or, or if you just don't have enough money, you know, mm-hmm. you can't pay, pay first, last, and damage deposit. That's how you get homeless, right? That's one way. Another way is a schizophrenia. Mm-hmm. Um, I know someone who, if it were not for the very hard work and very forbearance of his family would be homeless, 100%, no question. And keeping him out of homelessness is a lot of work because his personality is is abrasive when you are expecting a kind of um, uh, neat, uh, unhoarding, un, uh, you know... <laughs> <laughs> just uh like like most of my neighbors if they came into my apartment would uh, they would be offended and the reason they would be offended is because i don't have the requisite number of coffee tables couches and doilies you know i've you i've been into some of my neighbors apartments uh, yeah i don't have any doilies i don't even have a plant in here which is uh you know i think if you don't have a plant there's something wrong with you i think this uh, well <laughs> off topic i, I kill plant. i unfortunately kill plants so I, I do too, and that's one of the reasons I let them grow on my deck. <laughs> yeah, I'm, not a, I'm not good uh-huh. at plants. It, it makes me sad. I've had, I have plants at work which thrive when they go away from me and go to other people. It's sad. <laughs> yeah. it, it, these these sorts of things require a certain kind of attention, and um, if you were not able to conform yourself, as many people seem quite able to, um, then there's a good chance that you could fall into a fall through a crack in the system, as mm-hmm. it as it were, right? Um, if it was not for a, some kind of social safety net in Canada, a lot more people would be homeless. Um, I can think of a couple right now who, if it were not for government assistance, they would totally be homeless, and that is a frightening thought. Mm-hmm. But um, you can fall through the crack of the bureaucracy very easily, and many people do. So this is a kind of thing that I think 
it, it informs the the novel. It, it ends up not being, I think, a romantic story of uh, homelessness at all. I did not um, find it a romantic story of homelessness. Yeah, it's not. Uh, the, the, there's a couple people they mention um, who live half-lives, right? One of them is Lear. Um, yeah. who is, is that the uh, bird guy? No, he, that's no, the musician. The oh. musician oh, who right, gets right, the... Right. Um, do we get? I'm, I'm trying to remember if if that comes up later in the book where we get to see him again when he's used the music too much. Yes, yes we yeah, do. Yeah, we okay. do. Okay, okay, yeah, I, I can't remember. Is is that in the show as well? I yes, can't it, it, yes, it's in the show as well. He's getting beaten okay. to death because of his music. Right. Um, and, and when he when he said, "I I I, th- I think you set me up in advance, Marquis." I'm sure the Marquis knew exactly what he was doing. Yeah. For sure, you always need another favor in your pocket. <laughs> Marky is a crafty character. What do you think about the um no, what was there's a line about the Marquis saying um uh I don't think he's 100% uh reputable. Oh my god, that's so funny. <laughs> he said something about he he's a little disreputable like uh, like rats have a little bit of something about fur. Oh, oh yes, that's right. Rats and fur. Let's see if I can. Yeah. Oh, I, I have it somewhere. I'll I'll search for it. Rats have fur or something like that, right? Yeah. Like a rat has fur. I can't even remember how it goes. Um, and what what what's so good about uh, Neil Gaiman's writing, other than you know he's a good craftsman, gets his job, um, you know, very well polished, and then. Uh, we enjoy it, is his turns of phrase are virtually perfect. Yeah. If you understand what I mean. Um, he, <laughs> he will often do this thing while he describes a long list of things um, that are in a room or not in a room. <laughs> yeah. Yes, and, and how, how Krupp and Vandermar are alike or right. not alike. That was right. just so pre- great. Yes. He... he he really outlines the characters for the actors, I think, on the show enough so that we get who they are without um, understanding how they came to be. Um, there's a line about the Marquis and how he came to be that's pretty interesting. But um, it also feels like a very small world in the in the London Under, given that you know, so you're running out of names very quickly, and this happens um, in other fantasy worlds as well. Uh, what's the name of the most famous hunter? Hunter. 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 <laughs> well, I, 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 I have the quote, by the way. Yeah. Yep. Have you got it. Yeah. He, Richard began the Marquis. Well, you know, to be honest, he seems a little bit dodgy to me. Door dodgy. The steps dead ended in a rough brick wall. Mm, she agreed. He's a little bit dodgy in the same way the rats are a little bit covered in fur. <laughs> yeah, right. That's Meaning it. that he's totally dodgy, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, at the end of the, the illustrated version of Neverwhere, there's a, a short story about how the Marquis got his coat back. That was also right. in the audiobook. Oh, yeah. okay. So there we go. And, and that also kind of gives a backstory of him. Um, yes. Uh, now, I, I want to point out. Um, I didn't know this when I was watching the show. I didn't know this while I was reading the book, but I I'm careful. Do you guys know where the name of the Marquis de Carabas came so it comes from? No. It's awesome. Um, it's from Puss in Boots. Oh 
Oh, yeah. Oh, <laughs> Puss in Boots is the story of a cat who uh, does one over on a king. Um, <laughs> he's a cat with boots, right, and a sword and a hat. Um, and one of the things that the uh, character Puss in Boots does is he says, I am working for my master, the Marquis de Carabas, a non-existent person. And oh. at one point in the novel or the story, um, he, the king is visiting uh, a forest near a river, and he says to the king, um, help, help, my master has left his clothes on the, on the bank and fallen into the river. Help him. And that happens in this story, in a certain sense, <laughs> right? Why, how the Marquis got his coat back is a uh, reference to the fact that, I guess, he loses his coat, right? When he's dead, yeah. yeah. Right? Um, but he also goes in a river, which is the sewer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, and he, he's, he's a non-existent person in a certain sense. Um, and he comes back from the dead, right? Um, becomes real again. And then uh, at the end, it's not Dor who opens that door uh, to London under it's the Marquis. Um, I, 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 I thought about that in mm-hmm. the old versions. Like, I think Dor would be a bad choice because that would help reinforce the narrative that he it is all imaginary, it's all in the set, because it's all centered around Dor. By having the Marquis open the door, it kind of reinforces the interpretation that it's all real. And because because if it was all it said, it would be door opening the door because, you know, that makes perfect sense. And she was the one that started this whole break. But by having mm-hmm. the Marquis do it, it helps it helps defeat that the narrative that yeah, it's all in his head. And it's the oldest stuff has actually happened. Not to mention, it's clear to me. Uh, OK, I've never met Neil Gaiman, even though he lives um, not that many hours away from me to the east, and I and we, and we have mutual friends, one of which actually houses houses from from time to time. But I think Gaiman really liked the Marquis and write, write, writing the Marquis. I think sure. the Marquis is, is definitely <laughs> his favorite character, and so of course the Marquis is going to be the one at the end to let Richard back into the back into the world of London below. Do you know what though? I just thought when you just as you're talking, the Marquis came back from the dead, and mm. Richard going back is sort of a in a way, uh, he's going back to like you know he's leaving this life and going back to that. Like, mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's a nice twinning. There's, there's yeah, metaphor there. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that yeah, makes, that that's makes why the... he's leaving. Right, is is the life above is not a real life. Mm-hmm. And he plans it all out. He says, "I'm going to go home and have sex with this lady." Then, in she's going to help in the morning. We're going to because it's Saturday. We're going to lie in and then unpack all my stuff. And then in a year, we'll be married, <laughs> and we're going to have two children. And I'm going to get another promotion. And I don't want this life. Yeah, he he's seen. Yeah, he can see it all laid out. This kind of makes me think now as we're talking this of um, Dante's Inferno. And basically, so that would make the Marquis Virgil in a sense here, because he's going to lead, he's going to lead Richard away from the life that he doesn't like, which because that's the way he's, uh, the Inferno starts, because he's in the he's lost in the dark wood and he doesn't like what he's doing, and lead him down below to uh, to another life. I have a very small concern. Oh. Um, I hope you guys, uh, Paul, are you recording? Because I was not recording for some reason. Um. I am. Is it is it is it, is it working? That's a good question. 
Okay. Uh, it looks like it's working at this time, I think. Okay, if it's not working, uh, let's just record a little intro in the middle. Um, <laughs> okay. Okay, 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 let's do it, let's do it. There we go. Hi, I'm Jesse. Hi, I'm Paul. Hello, I'm Misa. And we're going to talk about Neverwhere by Neil Gaiman, a novel and a television show and an audio drama and a comic book and it's been stage plays and it's uh been everything except for a movie it's been a radio drama um it's a new illustrated book it's pretty impressive the number of things this this thing is i i don't think there's been a book like with this many adaptations in such a short period of time you know you'd have to go to dracula or frankenstein or um something like that to see or maybe Transformers. <laughs> oh, God, Jesse. I didn't want to go there, but I was Jesse. just thinking, uh, and, and, that was a product line, a toy, right? And, yeah. and, and the subtle differences between them all, they're all distinctly different. Uh, so, mm. so, so and, and here was a tiny little bit I caught from the audio drama that I kind of like, even though it's not in the book, it's not in the TV series, it's not in the comic book. At the very beginning of the audio drama, that's that wonderful audio drama that has Bender Cumberbatch as Isling. Such and, a good audio drama. And, and um, James McAvoy and Natalie Dormer. It's Dirk Maggs is the producer for that. Yeah. So at the very beginning, we get Krupp and Vandermore killing somebody in, 15, in the 15th century. And then they say, oh, we gotta, we're going to go to London Below in fi- uh, 500 years from now. It makes it sound like they're time traveling. Psychopaths. Mm-hmm. That, that, that's not explicit in the book or in the TV show. It just sounds like they've been around living for a long time. But in the audio drama, they make it explicit. Oh my God, they time travel, which, which amps up their fear because, I mean, they could have. I mean, given the time, given the issues of time travelers and their timelines, they could still be around, just not having been killed yet. I like. Ooh, I like uh, that's really cool. That's really cool. Really about- scary. We haven't yeah. talked about Krupp and Vandemar very much, but I, I do want to uh, point out uh, that I think Vandemar is named after the Poe character, uh, Facts of the Case of M. Valdemar. Yes, I, I'm a pretty, I, I mean, I know Gaiman is a very, very, very big Poe fan, so I'm yes, sure that's, that's where yeah. it comes from. Um, it, it doesn't really fit like um, with the, the that character, who's basically just a dying corpse throughout the whole story. But um, there's there's a number of lines in, in I think the, there's one that's included in maybe it's not in the comic book but it's included in every adaptation and every every version of the story is um uh, when the Marquis comes to visit uh, Krupp and Vandemar in their one of their layers um, he says what do you want Mr Krupp says oh no um, oh no that's the way the, the Marquis says he says what do you want and uh, Valdemar says, uh, uh, dead things, extra teeth. They make a really interesting pairing. You have the very garrulous and talkative and, mm-hmm. and talking locutions, Mr. Croup, who loves to use language. So Mr. Gaiman can just, yeah. so he can, he can just throw his love of culture and language into Mr. Croup and he goes with it. But he's just as scary as Mr. Valdemar. Mr. Valdemar is just the the big, 
big dangerous brute that will kill you. I mean, he, he yeah. can be dumb as an ox because, you know, he stabs himself with his own knife and can't get it off. But then just when you thought, okay, he's really, really, really stupid and you could probably win him. They, they have that little bit like we, the group says, we never killed the Marquis before. And Valdemar mm-hmm. corrects him like, oh, yes, we have. This is the one. And, is the Duke of Exeter and the Marquis. Uh, and, right, and the Marquis. And yeah. you, you can see Croup's uh, pissed off like, crap, he remembered that. So, yeah, Valdemar is not as dumb as you think, which is kind of scary. He's he's the big, dangerous, immortal, immortalized bruiser. It's like, oh, God, I, and, I do not ever want to meet these guys ever. I like that um, uh, when he's, they're saying those two men came into my apartment. He's men. Yeah, I guess you could call them men. <laughs> and then uh, we also hear um, uh, Krupp says, um, "If we prick us, do do we not bleed?" And then Valdemar says, says no. "No, we don't," <laughs> because yeah, they're they're not humans at all. They're not even related to humans. Um, so. So, yeah, so you think that they're they're time travelers then? They're definitely time travelers in a certain sense. I, I don't think they get in a time machine. No, no I, yeah, I wasn't sure how what was happening with the timelines down there, if it was just stopped or that, they were just there forever. Because t- there is no time, right? Doesn't Richard say, look down on my watch and... There's, yeah, not, well, his watch stopped working. His that, watch that, stopped working. But but his debit card also stops working, there, right? There, so that's true. There's, yeah, there's, bubbles the, of, there's bubbles of time and space in inside London below. That's made explicit just because of all the different architectures, all the different societies, mm-hmm. and also in the novel. Remember, briefly, he comes out of the train station and finds that he's three thousand years ago. Yeah, and, yeah, and. And it's even made explicit Good that there's point. there's time even in the um, even in the short versions there the door uh, men- mentions that oh she she found the uh, the remnants of a Roman legion still That's living right. it's they're like, still yeah. camped they're still yeah. ca- they're still camped I love that idea I mean if you want a little criticism of Neverwhere and I would have loved to have seen more of all those little alternate times and places I mean the the, the never the London below that we get is relatively uniform and relatively can be taken as a, a metaphor for homelessness and on the streets and, and underneath in the sewers and subways. I would have liked to see more of that even more fantastical element of, okay, you can come out of a train station and whoop dee dee wow, you're in 12th century, a blue bubble of 12th century England. I would have loved to see that, more of that. Give me Maybe more of that. Outskirts. Yeah, I was you have thinking, to travel farther for that. I was thinking about Mice's story um, about visiting, the, seeing that homeless woman, the quote unquote bag lady, right? Um, who, you know, you offer a sandwich and she she doesn't want one. Um, it's it, it is tough. It is tough, and I, it reminds me of like one of the reasons I I interact with homeless people a lot is. Um, I'm relatively poor, and because I was relatively poor from uh, childhood age, I I was not given an allowance by my parents where almost everybody I knew got money just for existing. It's like, how does this work? How did you trick them into it? I don't get it. My 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 mom won't give me any. My dad had died, so I, I didn't have a double income, right, um, To from which to draw. So uh, for me, I, I'm in competition with the homeless people for collecting bottles, 
I need to get the bottles to the bottle depot so I can get my uh, money so I can buy some comic books, right? And so I'm I'm not, you know, digging in the same bins. I'm not going through uh, every garbage can looking for, for bottles. But if I'm walking down the road and there's a bottle there on my, on my walk home because I can't afford to take the bus, I'll pick up a bottle. And, yeah, I might be a little embarrassed about it when all my ki- my friends are, um, you know, able to take the bus and uh, are able to uh, buy the things they want. But I need that money because I need those comic books or whatever it is, mostly comic books, Dungeons and Dragons modules or whatever it is. I need the money. <laughs> um, and the thing is, is, uh, you know, now, today, I still... I don't go out of my way to do it, but I still make trips to the Bottle Depot, and I've had interactions with a lot of the people there, just regular folks who do it once a month, right? But there's also a vigorous homeless or quasi-homeless industry mm-hmm. of, you know, returning things to the Bottle Depot for money. Um, if you want to help the homeless, increase the bottle deposit by a lot. I'll tell you <laughs> that, because it hasn't gone up since uh, when I was a kid. In fact, it's gone wow. down. Uh, used to be a two liter bottle was 30 cents now it's 20 cents um the cans and bottles under two liters are five cents right um but that's five cents in 2018 money not five cents in 1980 money yeah Um, Yeah. and uh you could buy a comic book for 40 cents or 35 cents in 1980 can't buy one for that like there are there are some some um serious ways of dealing with uh, problems in homelessness. But uh, today, you know, if the confluence of events is exactly right and I want to help somebody, it's very hard to do that without, you know, making a big effort to get into their life. And people don't like to, you know, be condescended to. But a couple of times, it just so happens, I've got a trunk full of bottles in my car there's a guy collecting bottles and his cart isn't completely full. I was like, hey, dude, you want these? And they, that's me. That makes his day, makes my day too, because I feel compelled to take those bottles to the bottle depot because of my penurious lifestyle. Or I don't know if that, I'm using that word right. My my poorness when I was young. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Your, your, I think that was your, yeah, your poverty. Uh, has influenced your out your outlook ever since. A hundred percent, right? Mm-hmm. So I, I today I I don't ever like leave a bottle uh, lying in the garbage can at my job when some student throws one in the bottle, it, it, a bottle in the can. I pull it out and put it in a bag and put it in my trunk and and it's it's a it's a weird thing to do, but you know a trunk full of bottles for somebody who's collecting them is a treasure. Yeah. Um, and it's not a uh, insult as much as, um, you know, a handful of money. And some people are explicitly calling for money and some people are just doing their lives. You know, that's just their life. And they do have homes. Um, I don't want to sound like the Jessica character there um, saying they all have homes. But some homeless people that you think are homeless actually do have homes. They just don't care to live their life in the way that you think is respectable they wear weird clothes they push a shopping cart around because it's actually quite convenient to push a shopping cart around i push them myself right um but uh, i i'm sort of bringing this away from the book but i i, I think um 
when we get to the the heart of this story, it's not only about homelessness. It is about homelessness, but it's not only about that. I think it's about choosing your own way to live. Yes, yeah. I agree. And with Richard having his apartment taken away from him, having his girlfriend uh, refuse him in a in a point where he has a duty to her, um, but he has a greater duty to, to a stranger, and she refuses to see it that way, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that break is a break that everyone should have a realization like, no, there's just some things that are wrong. And yeah, you can be rude, but you can't be um, cruel. If somebody's lying there in the street bleeding, that's not the same as lying there in the street drunk. Yeah. Right? And uh, the thing is, is people are powerful. So if you walk up to a homeless person and wake them up and say, hey, are you okay? Um, You might get a smack in the face because people have hands and we're dangerous as humans. But there are some times when it's very easy to tell um, a little thing can help. But you have to be sensitive to it. And I, I like the way this book deals with how... Um, it, it, it's they're not ghosts exactly, right? But they're invisible people in a certain sense. And to me, they're all too visible. And I, I think for a lot of people, they become invisible. Mm-hmm. And that's why I have a, such a difficulty dealing with homelessness myself is because, not I, that I have homelessness, dealing with the problem of homelessness is because I'm so sensitive to it that it, it can, it, it wounds me to see people in possible distress. I, I, I'm sounding like I'm opening myself no, up for a mark no, here. Yeah, I, I know, but I, I feel the same way. I mean, I, I, I'm not from a rich family either, so I when I, when I see homeless people or people standing up, like standing at an intersection asking for money, and I don't carry cash really anymore. I really use dreaded credit cards. And I pain because I, I, I there I'm at the stoplight, and there they are with the sign – and I have nothing to give them, and I feel bad and hard because, like, I got it's like I I have to look away because, like, I I've got nothing for you. You to, have to look to, away. It's absolutely the it's, the feeling is it's, it's, like, it's horror. Right? It's, it's horrible. Kind of horror. I, I, I can't face I can't face that poverty and deprivation and being unable to do anything directly about it. I mean, I can give to charity and do other things, but I can't help that person right here, right now, and it wounds me and. It's soul sucking. So yeah, yeah and that, but that's sensitive a soul, Paul. But that's that's the difference between like okay, so yes, I I I have to look away because it's too painful to look, and the people that don't see it, like that's I think the essence of this. It's they mm-hmm. don't even see it. It's it, you know. Yeah. Notice that when Jessica sees um sees Richard and she can almost remember his name, right? Yeah. At the uh the showing. And I think that that part may be a little bit underdeveloped. Mr. Stockton, um, is he the angel <laughs> in the yeah. uh, world above? Um, angel investor. He is. I was thinking about that. I'm not sure that that term was around but when the, no, when the but story it came out. Now. It does kind of work now, right? These these um these super rich uh, controlling people who he himself tells his own story of starting young and poor. Mm-hmm. Right. And what did he do? He spent all this time investing in a, uh, the restoration of a angel that he saw for free. 
Turns out that that's the door to the uh, trap where the angel's hidden, right? Yeah. So there's there's a kind of um, underdeveloped uh, parallelism going on. Mm, maybe it's maybe it's not supposed to be, but uh, just the fact that Richard was a stockbroker or a securities analyst, which is essentially the same thing. And uh, I think they make him a media guy. Mr. Stockton is more of a media guy. He owns a bit of everything. Yeah, he reminds me of like a Rupert Murdoch. Sort of yeah, I think that's, he's explicitly called out as a like a Murdoch, right? Yeah. Um, which is not a good comparison. No, it's, no, it's, it's not. Kind of saying you know, he's a monster. But um, there's, a, <clears throat> there was an incident when I was um, – I'm a comic crazy person i'm gonna tell this story anyways um i i saw a friend of mine um who i went to high school with and he he um he i ran into i was with him in vancouver and uh he lives in vancouver i live out in the suburbs where he he was he was raised and i'm still here right um and we ran into a friend of his in vancouver on the street and um he says uh this friend says oh yeah i'm in banking and I got it, this horrible sort of reaction. I had this horrible reaction. It's like, oh my god, how can you live like, <laughs> like, <laughs> like? Oh, and I'm thinking like, this guy thinks I'm insane. Um, but the thing is, is you know, being a being Neil Gaiman as your job has has to be a pretty rewarding job. Um, you're creating these amazing worlds. Or I guess Mesa, you know this, right? Being a, a creator of a, a whole universe of characters um, is fun. It is. Right? You can feel it in, in the writing. You can feel it in the story. You can feel it in the experience. Right? It's fun. And in a sense, the, the stock analyst that is Richard uh, Mayhew is choosing a life of fun and mystery and adventure over a life of horror of the un, uncreative. Mm-hmm. Working in banking is a recipe for making money. It's a recipe for for not being creative. And I think that when he chooses, you know, even though he's got a he's got a promotion, he's got an office, he's He's got all his furniture back. He's got a new apartment. He's got everything he should. He can even get his old girlfriend back, right? His uh, and he even likes her. But she is just more down that path. She wants to get in good with her boss. That's her pressure, right? She wants him to act in the right way and call her by the right formula, not pet names. No pet names, right? This whole choosing your life uh aspect of the story i think is really more 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 about what the book's about than even the homelessness aspect of it i i I think so too but even i mean like when you think about richard and and his life as a banker and stuff there's it's there's some prehistory here that the book doesn't explore because you know those trolls that he has on his desk Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and and why would, could he see door? Like, there's stuff here that we don't. Yeah, that's lampshaded. Uh, and, and I was thinking about why, why, right? One of the things, you know, this expression lampshaded is from 
TV tropes, I think. Yeah. So, uh, you've got, Paul, you want to explain it? So, lampshade is basically um, you you have you have um, a common trope that is in fiction, and lampshading is basically pointing to it explicitly as a trope within the actual narrative. It's like here, here, he here's the evil, here's the evil guy. Like, like for example. Like just to give another example out of the space balls when you see Darth Helmet and he says to get up as Darth Vader, they're lampshading the whole evil overlord by making him so ridiculous and so explicit that you can't not miss the point of who he uh, is. I think you can go even farther. So uh, imagine there's a television show and they need to replace an actor, right? <laughs> the actor died or whatever. Yep. Yeah, there you go. Um, although I don't remember them doing. Oh, 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 oh yeah, like for example, Iron Man. Okay, the, what okay, okay. Between Iron Man one and I, Iron Man two, the actor, the they changed the actor who played Rhodey, and the first words the new Rhodey has to uh, Iron Man in Iron Man two is like, "Yeah, I'm here, just get over it." So it's kind of right, it's right, kind right. of referencing the actual change, right? Yeah, so not, not, yeah, it's not you talk about something else. So yeah, so you get a, an act, a new actor, and you, and and they replace them, and then they say. Um, hey, you look different. Did you change your hair? Right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I changed my hair. And also, the unstated, right? right. Um, so that when Dor uh, is discoverable by Richard on the street, um, she, he says, how if, if this is how it is in the interaction between London above and London below, how is it that I could see you? And she says, she says yeah, that's interesting. <laughs> Yeah, um, that's right. Then you say okay, and the, the, and they don't. There's no answer, right? The, the, and the answer yeah, is no that's answer. how you write the story. The, right? the, 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 the novel tries to actually lay some groundwork for it by having him meet the uh, the fortune teller up in Scotland, where it says, where right, she, where, where she right. says, oh yeah, yeah, you, you can go, for, doors, you can yes. go further to London. Uh, yeah. beware of doors. It's like so the fortune teller. So it's almost like the whole idea of a destiny. He was destined to. Uh, go into London below because the fortune teller clearly saw it even long before like the episode the, in London. I like the trolls. They're, they're underdeveloped. Um, it, 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 the way he ended up with a bunch of trolls on his desktop is that he found one. He found and, one. And then... That becomes a and thing. Then and it becomes <laughs> a thing. But it, it, it comes back in a very, very good way. It's very subtle. But at the end, when he's got his new office... And his door is closed. He starts playing with the tr- trolls and I, say, I'm the Marquis de Carabas, right? And we must fight. But first, we'll have a nice cup of tea. That's right. That's right. A nice cup of tea. By the way, this is um, this is the other big influence. You know, we've got Poe and we've got we've got um, oh, so many parallels. Between, yeah, Dickens. There's so many parallels between this and other Neil Gaiman stories. Uh, yeah, Alice in Wonderland, right? The other really big one is, um, in fact, it's kind of the exact same story, if you think about it, is Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. You, yes, there is. Are you going to talk about the mice? I wasn't going to talk about the mice. Let's talk about uh, the mice. Go, mice. Let's talk about the mice. <laughs> well, we've got the rat speakers here. But in yep. Hitchhiker's Galaxy, the, the way they talk about mice is, he says, these creatures you call mice, you see, they are not quite as they appear. They are merely the protrusion into our dimension of vastly hyper-intelligent pan-dimensional beings. Yep. <laughs> uh, yes. Um, and, of course, the rats are 
a royalty in a certain sense in the under underworld, right? Right, and they know everything about everyone it, between dimensions. They go between dimensions. It's true. Hello, Ratty. Mm-hmm. Nice to see you again. Yes. <laughs> Ratty? Ratty? <laughs> I didn't know why she gets so scandalized that he's on such uh, such common terms with a, with a rat. It's like... I, I think um, just the way he turns a phrase, I, I, I actually um, encountered Neil Gaiman before comics without knowing it when he wrote a book about about Douglas Adams, um, about the Hitchhiker's Guide and Douglas Adams, and it was a very long and well, it was a short and rambling book about spending time with Douglas Adams. They were friends. Um, hmm. He was a journalist at the time. I think it was his first book, um, Neil Gaiman's first book, and uh, he, I think the reason he was attracted to Neil Gaiman, or Neil Gaiman was attracted to Adams, is because. He said, yes, this, and this is the writing that I like, right? Mm-hmm. That kind of uh, zany but controlled. And he has actually, Gaiman has much more control and much more discipline than Douglas Adams. Um, Adams was much lazier, I think, um, when it comes to uh, getting stuff done. And he's mm-hmm. always procrastinating, playing, playing computer games. It's why we have, what, an output of, like, Seven books, maybe, uh, with two uh, Dirk Gently books and five. Is it something like that? Uh, Hitchhiker's Guide yeah. to the Galaxy books. Yeah. yeah. Um, and you know, a couple of uh, nonfiction comedy books here and there. Yeah. And one uh, about an- extinction, uh, extincting animals. That, yeah, yeah, that's well, the one I was thinking. See, of. Yeah, and and, and, right. and also writing for uh, a couple of video games. He wrote the uh, yeah. Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy video game and also Starship Titanic. Right. Yeah. Yes. So he, yes. he I mean he didn't do nothing but uh for a man who wrote so few books he has an amazing reputation or had one anyways. Um but the nice cup of tea and the very Englishness of um of this this Englishman uh and the parallels that happen in that original Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy story uh you know he he goes on an adventure he's the incompetent right of the group. Um, he's the one who has to ask all the questions. The rich Richard here gets actually a lot more um, uh, to do than does Douglas Adams, uh, Arthur Dent. Mm-hmm. Right. Arthur Dent is just our viewpoint into into that madcap adventure that he's he's taking us on, and he's the reader in a certain sense. But here, Richard at least um, he eventually he levels gets, up. Well, yes. yeah, I mean, he, or at least in theory, right? It might all be in his head, but um, his uh, surviving the ordeal, something that no one else could do, um, it's almost like how did how did he how did he survive it? He he had empathy for himself or something like that, right? And also, it was um, who did you say at the very beginning? Uh, Anastasia. Anastasia, Anastasia, yeah. Anastasia, right. yeah. Right. He was always thinking. Of, I like that. You know, they they killed her off, essentially, or she disappeared anyway, like Dora's sister. Um, And yet he was always talking about her, even though it was a thing he had. It was her something of hers that that brought him back. The bracelet. Yeah. Right. Yeah. There's a there's a um, level of humanity in a book like this that you don't get in a formulaic uh, kind of I mean, I. I'm ashamed to even be associated with the idea of urban fantasy generally. And here we've got a beautiful, beautiful urban fantasy that I'm not ashamed about at all. 
Yeah. Right. <laughs> it's like it's 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 wonderful. Um, but uh, it came it came to me that this was a very Douglas Adamsy book when I, I I started noticing the number of times duck comes up. Did you guys notice it? Only you tweeted it, but I hadn't noticed it while I was going through. Okay, so the word to duck under is not what I'm talking about. That comes up a couple of times. Um, Listen to this. Ah, said Sylvia. Then her attention slid off Richard like water off an oiled duck. Right? Like just a, it's just a line. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, Richard inspected and rejected the poor towel uh, as poor towel substitutes a loofah, a half empty (laughs) bottle of shampoo, a small yellow rubber duck. That's Douglas Adams. That's, yeah, too. that's very Adams-esque. <laughs> no, it is. It, it, he, he's doing Adams in many respects. Yeah, he's doing in, Adams. In, here's another one. Inside the silver box, on a nest of red velvet, another velvet, was a large duck's egg, pale blue-green in the moonlight. Old Bailey raised the toasting fork, closed his eyes, and brought it down on the egg. It's like, why, why are there so many ducks in here? Um he just likes the word duck. He likes the idea of ducks in the same way that Douglas Adams liked towels, right? Yes. It's just a weird, like, little... Affectation, uh, yeah. Yes. Yeah, I haven't uh, noticed it before. Now that you're saying it, I do kind of, I do see it. I there was another one. Uh, I don't know if it came up here, but uh, he said um, it was somewhere in between, the, it's like saying it's somewhere in between the size of a duck and a planet. Right. You know what? Even though Douglas Adams... you. It, He's still my favorite. He, um, he's so good at, at at the turns of phrase and the lines. Yeah, Plotting is not his thing. It, it may not be, and I, I, but I can't, I can't hold anything against him. No, I mean he even makes the. That's the whole point of the uh, uh, Dirk Gently series, right? Is plotting's not my thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, let's see where this goes. <laughs> exactly. I may, I may not be going where I where I want to go, but I'm going to go where I need. I'm just going to get go me where, where I this need. goes. Yes. Yeah. And eventually it'll come to an end and it'll be, you'll be happy with it, but you will not have known or been able to predict where it was going. No, never. So, yeah, I I think that uh, on a line by line, um, this is, this is when, when I write really good uh, essays or when I help students fix their essays, right? What I'm doing is essentially trying to be as good at, and every once in a while, I think I come close to making a beautiful, you know, turn of phrase or extension, uh, odd sentence in the way that Adams or Neil Gaiman would. But he can do this consistently, paragraph <laughs> after paragraph. Yeah, right? line and after line. Like, it's, it's so good. It's crazy. He's, he's incredibly um, talented at, at that particular job of, of just um, – Knowing how to tell the story, yeah. It's a, you can see why so many people are what, are Neil Gaiman fans. Yeah, what, what, why, why he? I mean, well, I understand he kind of laments not being able to go anywhere and people not recognizing him as Neil Gaiman. It, it, he he he's he's, a, he's enough of a media star that yeah that he he can't go to a convention anonymously, right? Um. um one interesting little bit. Um, have either you ever read uh, Paul Cornell's Shadow Police novels? No. no, no. Um, they're basically an urban fantasy set in London about these police detectives that learn that they're actually 
secret magical doings in London. So it Paul Cornell clearly was inspired by Neverwhere. And here here's here's the kicker. As the police mm-hmm. are trying to infiltrate the magical underworld of London, they wind up going to a party and guess who's at the party? Neil Gaiman. Neil Gaiman uh-huh. is actually at the party <laughs> in a cameo. I mean, he has nothing actually in the end to do with the plot, but he's actually he's actually explicitly pointed out there. I thought that that was a good, that was a good thing. I mean, I I talked to Paul afterwards, and he kind of waffled when that that was actually a good idea. But I think it was a good idea because he's clearly mining and being inspired by Neverwhere. So actually, actually putting Gaiman into his world, I think, is appropriate, and I think it really worked really well. Mm-hmm. Mm. It's interesting. It, it, it's it's a book that um, everything's really on the surface. <laughs> that was an accident. Um, in the comic book, I didn't mean to say it that way. It just turns everything is really on the surface, though. Like there there is no um, s- super deep subtext to any of this, other than I guess you know talking about what we've talked about. Um, but because it's so well told, and because it's it's almost like you you, you guys all saw the. Um, the opening Dave McKean um, credits sequence mm-hmm. with the merging oh, faces and the yeah. fists coming up out of the ground and yeah. the hand and all the shadowy. That was also he, he, that um, I'm pretty sure that was the same uh, artist who did all the covers for well, almost all the covers for um, his comic book series. Yeah. Sand. Yeah. It's um, Dave McKean. And I, I've never really liked Dave McKean's style. I, I, my big problem with with um, with uh, the Sandman was the art was consistently good. Sometimes it was amazing, and sometimes it was like, yeah, I barely can tell what's going on here. Um, the writing was always great, <laughs> right? But um, and I was never happy with Dave McKean's style of art for the covers. I'm like, this is just like a, I don't know, what's that? What's that kind of art where you just get a whole bunch of stuff and put it together and take a picture? Collage. Collage, right? Yeah, it's just like, okay, that's a collage. Thanks. Like, collage was my least favorite kind of art. However, in the opening sequence with moving, I think it's terrific. I think it's wonderful. Um, that sort of grainy film videotape uh, merging and because it matches the dreamlike quality. And echoing music at the beginning over the crowd. Yeah, yeah. It's like it's, it's meant to be otherworldly and it works. Yes. yes. And, and it's just like how a dream care, you know, things merge into the other and uh, things are in shadow and things are not clearly seen. And and uh, I think it really, really works there. So. It, it it sometimes takes a different way of looking at something to give you a sense of it, but um, I think you guys should have a look at. I will put some up in the show notes uh, to the um, comic book adaptation. Uh, they are just such a different vision. With seeing Door not as a you know scroungy uh, leather clad uh, pixie girl, um, but rather as this. Uh, uh, almost genderless um, white figure with a a, uh, a keyhole tattoo over her eye. It's like this is not the vision I see, and yet it tells the story incredibly well. And hmm. just seeing the imagery of London upside down and 
seeing a different artist's interpretation of what it with really clean lines as opposed to the the way it appears in the show mm-hmm. uh, or the no lines at all as it appears in the audio drama right where you you create the image or in the book where it's all the sparkly gaiman turns of phrase for the non-dialogue part right that's the amazing thing the difference between the the show and the and the the novel is that we get all the the lines of dialogue but we don't get the descriptions and the way things aren't mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> as described by gaiman in the way um richard uh, it's it's actually quite great um in i think each of the recaps at the beginning of the the six part series is it the television show yeah thanks so. it's six half hours right he uh in one of them he says dear non-existent diary yeah <laughs> right well we actually get that text in here as well um but that is the only kind of sense you get on on the show of of what kind of a writer Gaiman is for things other than dialogue, because it is amazing what he does with just the turns of phrase. It, it makes it so that, and that's why I'm calling it a kind of children's book for adults. It doesn't have the depth that I like, but because it's so so enjoyable in the process, um, it makes you feel like it was worthwhile. And it still feels filling. Sorry, say that again. I said it still feels filling. Like, I, yeah, my problem is, is I think that this is what most people like get out of regular books is just, they just want another one and another one because it's like empty calories or whatever they say, you know, about it feels like the, if everyone wrote like Gaiman, I think we'd have a problem <laughs> because everything would be too good to read and not enough. He doesn't really go super deep. He really tells you what he's doing, I think. But. It's so well done mm. that you really can't complain. Oh. You, you, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, did you notice how many times uh, she uh, Doris called Elf or Elfin? Um, I didn't notice how many. A few, yes. Many times, I think. Let me see if I can't make it come up the number of times, but let, let me see how many times. Oh, the problem is, is uh, it's himself, herself. Uh, self. Uh, so Elvin, will that come up? No, that's Elf. Let's see if elf. I put quotation marks around it. Will that help? Nope. <laughs> it does come up a number of times. Every time she's her, when um, when uh, Richard looks at her, um, he, yep. She she blew her nose once more, put her hands deep in the pockets of her leather jacket. Then she turned to him, elfin face frowning. Odd elfin. Color. How do you spell that? A e l i f n. No, e l f i n. E l f i n. Okay. E l f i n. Aha! She looked up at him. Her yeah. There you go. Then um, she turned to him, elfin face frowning. Yep. Fire opal, opal colored eyes peering into his from a pale elfin face. Right. right. For, yeah. for a moment, her elfin face became beautiful. Uh, Dora was watching him, him and her, her elfin face, face and huge opal-covered eyes. And she looked at him, her elfin face pale in the pre-dawn light, and that, and that's all? Yeah, no. so it's like, it, it's, it's definitely an adjective he really liked to put on her, which makes the comic adaptation all 
little more jarring. It's like, because I did see enough of it to see doors. Like, no, that doesn't look elf at all. You, it's whatever you think an elf looks like, right? So, yeah. um, we have an Im- I have an image in my head from the uh, television show. She's short. Uh, she's dark haired. She's uh, young looking, you know. Um, no beard. <laughs> These are all things elves have. <laughs> <laughs> right? um, no pointed ears as far as I could tell. But And, and I think if had I listened to the audio drama first, rather mm-hmm. than, which, which is impossible because it came out years later, my conception would have been different because of the actress who plays it plays her mm-hmm. in the audio drama she's plays by natalie dormer who's who's this bl- blonde the the a blonde beauty from game of thrones so that but i kept seeing her as the tv show because i'd seen the tv show enough to fix my uh, fix my idea of what door looks like from the tv show but i can imagine someone re- listening to the audio drama first and making think she looks like something out of game of thrones mm. well, my, my friend who loves this book so much she kept she asked me how old do I think Dora is? And in the TV show, she looks older than she seems in the book. Like to me, she seems in the book, maybe a teenager. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're supposed to think that she's young. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, thinking about the, how the ending works again, um, mm-hmm. with Marquis showing up. One of the things that's interesting is that it's not quite a romance, right? Between him and, uh, between Dora and, uh, and uh, Richard? No, no. Um, because he—he's at one point he thinks he might have feelings for her or something like that. Uh, she kisses him. He, she hugs him a couple of times. She holds his hand. Um, but if if she had turned up at that ending, um, it would have been a more of a romance, right? It would have. It would be an H E A for sure. Yeah. What's a H E A? Happily ever after. Ah, uh, yes. Okay. Something like that. I mean, the thing is, is I think it is a happily ever after in a certain sense because he's going off to another right, adventure. Right. right? I'm, I'm using that in the in romance readers. There's, sure, there's sure. H-E-A, yeah. happily ever after. There's H-F-A, happily, happy for at the moment. And, you know, there's a, there's a bunch of those. But, yeah, H-E-A, I mean, I mean, you can even, like, when you read romance novel reviews and whatnot, H-E-A – is this an HEA or not? It's it's a it's a concern, and there are people who read who want that HEA and are de- need it and need it and need it. That's what they're reading it for. They're reading to make. Sh- that, I, I mean, but then again, I'm not going to criticize because if people read science fiction and fantasy for all sorts of things and are disappointed when those expectations are not there. It's just a matter of that's what that's just one of the tropes of the romance genre and what some people read that for. So, mm. so. Had Dora appeared, it would be a romantic HEA for sure, because that would, as I said earlier, that would suggest that yeah, that he's that she's the center of his world, and also also uh, put up that expectation that well maybe he is mad. But having the Marquis there kind of makes it like returning back to the other world rather than returning back explicitly to her. Exactly, he's coming back to the other world. I love how I love how Gaiman plays with it though, right? So. At, at the end there, the homeless person is like, don't put that knife away. You're, like, we're afraid for the homeless person. And it's it's really well done in the comic book adaptation. I think it's it's terrifically done in the book. Um, it's done well in the show, right? Um, the sense that he is crazy, right? He's, and when he talks about, he talks about all the people 
he's going to. You listen to the lane list of names. It's the Marquis of Carabas and Dor and Anesthesia. It's like these are I mean, these are this is this is what mental illness sounds like. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if I mentioned on the podcast before, but I I've had you know lunch with somebody or a, maybe it was dinner at a Chinese restaurant um, uh, who has schizophrenia, right? And uh, one of the things he said, and he said many things that are crazy, um, but one of the things he said to me, sitting there facing me, is, did you know I'm Chinese? <laughs> and I'm like, dude, you're not Chinese. I've met Chinese people. I know exactly where you came from. You're not Chinese. But he believed he was Chinese. He wasn't like, winding me up he wasn't uh you know uh making a joke in that no, I, moment I've, I've read about that that's a thing that happens to somebody. it is it's, it is i i forget i don't know what it's called but you wake up and you think you are of a like i think the one that i read about was chinese also it was this woman and she was positive she was chinese and there are people who you know are on twitter today who say you know i'm black and they're not black right um, there, but they they identify with it. But that the difference there is the rest of their sort of ecosystem of of reality seems to be relatively normal, right? They can hold a job, they can uh, raise kids, they can do all the stuff, and and yet in dreams that's how we are in a certain sense. You can identify yourself as not yourself. You can you can uh, see people as more than one thing, or you can realize that someone you you had known a long time was Chinese and it all makes sense in that certain respect. So when he, when he sees the homeless lady and he puts 10 pounds note into her hand, she wakes up and then he starts talking to her as if she's um, a confidant, right? Which she's not. It's an inappropriate relationship to spill your guts about just to some stranger on the street who is essentially a captive market who you've paid, Right. And then you pull out a knife and she freaks out and you don't seem to notice that it's not a thing to freak out about. <laughs> um, what I like is that that homeless lady has empathy for him. So, yeah. you know, the, the cops are going to come and they'll take you away if you don't put that thing away. Yeah. Right? And mm-hmm. and yet uh, when when the uh, interaction ends, we get back. He's going back into that world. And I, I think it's a masterful ending. I think that he he plays the uh, he plays the the materials for everything they're worth, and I think he really he really nailed it. Uh, so so a couple of things I want to touch off on um, him in the, in the TV show, him trying to carve the door with the knife kind of reminds me of Philip Pullman. The, have you read a series, Jesse? No, I haven't, but I was Lisa? thinking. I hear lots. Yes, of I yeah, I have. I'm, yeah. I'm thinking of the subtle knife there, which can cut doorways between worlds. It's like mm-hmm. Richard's trying to almost use a subtle knife there to cut between the two worlds and return back mm-hmm. to the world that he that he came from. And and, and in the end, yeah, the marquee the marquee uh, opens the door and offers him back oh back away inside. Um. There was something else I was going to mention. Crap. Um, brain freeze. Let me let me uh, throw up the uh, introduction or the quote that starts the book. Okay. Um, I have never been to St. John's Wood. I dare not. 
I should be afraid of the innumerable night of fir trees, afraid to come upon a blood red cup and the the bearing of the wings of the eagle. So this is a quote from the Napoleon of Notting Hill mm-hmm. by G.K. Chesterton. Yeah, uh, we just did a G.K. Chesterton, right? We did. Uh, Paul and I, anyways. Yeah. Um, and uh, it was dreamlike in many respects. St. John's Wood is not a forest as much as it is a part of London. Um, and I think we get a nice outline of uh, how, in, in at least the novel version, how London comes to uh, eat all of its neighboring communities and incorporate them. And that's where all those weird names come from, like Blackfriars and... Uh, all the stations, right, that we sort of visit underneath when when we find out that the night market's going to, or night, night, night market, the uh, floating the market. market. What's it called? Floating. The floating market, right. The floating market uh, is going to Belfast. You say, boy, that's not in London. Oh, yeah, technically it is, right? <laughs> um, and it is literally floating in this case. Um, there's a kind of... Um, uh, beautiful depth to this story that I, I was thinking, uh, you know, I, I put you on to him uh, or made the connection for you, Paul, the other day to uh, Jason Thompson, um, his uh, drawings for yes. uh, Dungeons and Dragons modules. Oh, yeah, I was thinking that if, if Jason Thompson was familiar with London, which I think is pretty hard to do unless you live there, uh, I, I've been there and I'm not familiar with it enough and I've been, I was there you know, a couple months. Um, I think that you could do an amazing sort of flowchart map that he does uh, for the story in here because it's it's a sort of a, a geographical love letter to London. I, I what, really what, what, now 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 you mentioned that now I'm wondering. Uh, there's a book called Plotted, a literary atlas. Have you heard of it? Uh-huh. No, I haven't. Um, it's basically makes a makes up cartographic maps of different stories, different different stories and where they go in, in, in the story. Um, Oh, so I just pulled up the table of contents. Let's see if it's actually in there. Odysseus, Elsinore, um, um, Pride and Prejudice. I'm seeing they actually have, actually have it in here. Um, Sadly, uh, those who stay for the reading. No, sadly, sadly he didn't pick Neverwhere as one of his uh, one of his choices. But there have been whole books on like Lord of the Rings uh, map right, books. Right. I used to sell them. Right, but th- this book is just map, uh, just just maps done in a very nicely Israeli style of where people go in various books. Be it, mm-hmm. I mean. That's interesting. It is. If you if you follow the like, because I went through this story so many times, right, over this week, the the comic book and the TV show and the audio drama and the the audio book itself, right, going through all of these different versions. I might see you got the uh, the paper book as well. Yeah. Um, uh, I notice, you know, when the Marquis leaves and when he rejoins and how he has a separate journey under the in a separate sewer and then he meets up with 
this character and they're both in the same spot at the uh, on the Bel- HMS Belfast, but then they don't see each other there. Yeah. And then Richard falls behind. Like this is one of those threaded stories where if you follow the characters, who stays together, who goes apart, uh, you can see how it would look, could totally you, be mapped. You, 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 you could, could do an underground tour of you could London, yeah, and right? just have the just to have the the little lines of Richard and Dor and the Marquis and Krupp and Vandemar, yep. just like in the style of this book, which I just linked in the just linked in the uh, the chat there. That's exactly uh-huh. how this that this book works. You could actually totally do it if you. Uh, I think it, I think it will something. happen eventually because this book is so popular. It's perennially. You know, it seems to have grown in stature over the years instead of uh, lost stature. The fact right. that they just came out with a new new edition in illustrated, I don't think that's going to be the last edition. It's it, it it it. I think it will age even better than did, and that's not a good thing because it didn't age that well. Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy has. It, it, the beginning is quite dated. But. Yeah, but the, but this but this, I mean this this book is much more timeless, and I just thought. Of another book that we've done that this kind of reminds me of in some ways, and that's mm-hmm. Glory Road. Ah, but, 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 we haven't done that. We haven't done that. Oh, I want to do that, did, but we haven't oh, done that. Oh, did I listen to this book and not do it for the podcast? I guess I did. Oh, that's right. Because I, that's because I listened to this on my trip to Colorado. Well, that's, we may, might need to add that one in. But, I think my but, but it's got the whole ordinary person dropped into a weird world. Yeah. I, 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 Why don't you I, I, tell tell Misa the the premise? Okay, so uh, Glory this Road. This is Heinlein novel. It's a Heinlein oh, novel. Oh boy. Okay. <laughs> uh, I, I, um, uh, Oscar Gordon is a is a um, he's a veteran from Southeast Asia who winds up Vietnam War. Yeah. Vietnam War. Actually, it's actually the way it's said. It's actually before the war actually turned into what's more poli- the early stages. He winds up getting recruited by. The Empress of Twenty Universes to go find a magical artifact. He winds up in a fantasy world. He doesn't believe it at first, but he he has a he has a, a little dwarf companion along with them, and they basically have adventures as they're trying to get this magical gizmo back that she needs basically to run her world. And in the end, he he's given back his life. He's he's a successful mission, and he decides. I'm dissatisfied with it. I want to go back to Star. That's the name. That's the name, of woman. And and having those fantastic adventures rather than being stuck on Earth. So, he, in the end, he yeah. chooses to return to the fantastical life because his ordinary life, even though he's been given money and everything else, just does not suit him anymore. So, I mean, he's a more competent hero to start with than Richard because you know he's a war veteran. He's got real skills, but. He's he, a Heinlein character. He's right? a he's a he's a Heinlein hero, but he's definitely at the beginning, definitely out of his depth to start with, knowing what what the heck am I doing here? So mm-hmm. it sort of feels again and again. That's a good book. That sounds interesting. When you were talking, you, you reminded me of um, the, the the another thing that this reminds me of is in a in a small way the Hobbit, except that instead mm-hmm. the Hobbit. Instead of writing his memoir, because he was always not so happy anymore, because he only wrote it if he had gone back. Mm-hmm. Oh, he does. He does. Well, he does. In the sequel. He does. In the <laughs> sequel. Of. Right. In the sequel. He goes yeah. on a little trip, right? Yeah. It, 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 it is, and we could spend another hour talking about how how this is the hero's journey and how it's averted. The hero leaves his hometown, goes on a venture, and comes back. But in Neverwhere and in Glory Road, the hero decides. 
upon getting back to home that he's changed enough that home. home is not home to him anymore and he must go yeah. back back out into into the wild magical other world because that's where he truly belongs now i mm-hmm. bet that the tv tropes uh website for this book is huge i didn't even think about that but yeah the oh, hero's yeah, journey yeah, stuff yeah. gotta be giant right i i i've been to the tv tropes website and i've survived it's kind of like going to london below <laughs> it's <laughs> incredibly deep yeah there, there there are links up the wazoo i mean looking at it they got down se- to wazoo se- down to wazoo se- separate links on characters and head scratchers and wild mass guessing and yeah it's it's tons of tons and tons of stuff you could spend an hour just looking through every single one of these pages on Neverwhere because, as I said before, Gaiman really taps into something mythic and true and resonant with people here. And it, I mean, this is this is the quintessential Gaiman book. Yeah, I think I think even, that even it, more than people Sandman. look at American Gods, but I, I think this is actually a better book than American Gods. Um, it, it, the story is really tight. I I, I, I I agree with you. I think this is yeah. American Gods is good. Neverwhere is his book that could be read a hundred years from now and people still love it. I think it. it may still be. Yeah, I wanted to point out that there, there is some more precedent for this. There's a a series of books in the fifties called the Mapbacks. They're called yep. now uh, Dell books Mapbacks. Mm-hmm. They're they're terrific. So they'd have like a Perry Mason uh, adventure, you know, story, mm-hmm. legal adventure, and it would just show on the back all the locations where where things have you know, yeah, you know, where the murder happened, and sometimes they're just you know an apartment on the back, but sometimes it's a whole city. You know, you, you get a Dashiell Hammett book, and you see all the all the key events and little lines, and they're just beautiful. And I I think that. Fantasy books um, are the only ones that really put maps in, unless they're like, I don't know, uh, hard science fiction or military SF, they might put one in. But regular weird other books like this um, would well, well deserve a some. I'd take a poster of the Neverwhere plot. It's oh yeah, I've I can go. I I, want to see what Jason Thompson could do with uh, the Marquis de Carabas. I think that. The way he's depicted in the show is just terrific with the white haired, short crop hair in the front and the dreadlocks in the back. Mm. It's amazing. I, I, if I he's could a, pull that off, I would wear that. <laughs> I, I want to plug one more book that ties in with Neverwhere um, mm-hmm. by, by Megan Lindholm. That was, that was the original, that's the actual name of Robin Hobb. Before she was writing, write all her secondary world fantasy. She wrote a urban fantasy about homelessness and magic set in Seattle called <laughs> A Wizard of the Pigeons. I'm okay. dead certain Ooh. that Gaiman must have read this one too at some point. It's, <clears throat> it's from the 80s. It's basically about about a magical battle involving homeless people, uh, uh, one of whom has magical powers. It's set in Seattle and it's it's long since out of print unless they've put it back onto ebook at some point. I like that if they did. And it's a it's a class it's it's a classic of uh, the genre. I'm pretty sure that Gaiman must have read it before writing mm. writing this. Well he's he's very um he's very much a lover of genre, right? You, you can feel it in this in this book with all the references. There was one near the end uh, I went Oh yeah. Um when Richard comes out of the uh, secondary world, the uh, London below. Mm-hmm. What's mm-hmm. the first? What's the first thing he says? 
Uh, or the description is the sky above the city was the color of television tuned to a dead yes, channel. Yes, a Neuromancer <laughs> reference. That was cute. <laughs> I was like, that is, that, this is why we needed Mr. Jim Moon, because I think that the number of references were missing. I, I've got a few here. I, I spotted a few. But I'm, think, I'm thinking this is the annot- where the annotated version that's still to come on this on this book is going to come in, right? Where you, you go through and you find not just the ones that are explicitly called out, but the the nods and the winks that are more hidden. Right. Um, and especially with the ge- geography of London, um, it makes me want to read that Napoleon of Notting Hill uh, book, just that the fact that this character, whoever he is, is afraid to go to a part of London because it, it, it sounds like London below, right? In the way his... Uh, He's described it. I want to point out one more thing before we run out of time. I don't know how much time you've got. But um, uh, the MacGuffin, um, there's two things about the MacGuffin that I want to say is really interesting. One is uh, Dor is cleverer than everybody, right? She sends Hunter and uh, and Richard off to get some food, uh, which they do. She meets up with her her um, old friend Hammersmith, and she says it's right on the in the the original uh, show. She says, "I have two things I want you to do for me." Right in in, in the show, we see explicitly two keys, whereas in the text it doesn't say it, which I thought was right. inter- interesting that the text to- keeps that hidden until the end, but in the show we and get it's the... it's a good hidden, just in the in the same way that we don't know who the bad guy is until we find out who the bad guy is, and right. then we know before the uh, some of the characters know, but it seems that Dor knows D- before uh, at least she's suspicious right. and, and, of... And in the TV yeah. show she says uh, uh, she, that she was she was suspicious in the TV show she mentions it because uh, how if her father was recording that quickly at the end how did they wind up back in the vault which is which is something that's actually not in the book it's a, there's something there's something about um yeah how did how did yeah who hid her father's journal right right because yeah. he was recording it right at the end there she's very very canny and um it, it also goes into like what's the relation this is uh, 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 let me do finish the key first. Okay. okay, so what's the name of the key? Does it have a name? It does. It's the silver key. Oh. And Paul, do you recognize that name? The silver key. I should, shouldn't I? You should. If we had Mr. Jim Moon here, he would be doing my job for me. The silver <laughs> oh, key. Lovecraft. Yeah. An H.P. Lovecraft Duh. story. I just had to think It's about the it. key to Dreamlands, right? right? Right, right. And there's even a sequel that uh, somebody insisted uh, and half helped Lovecraft write or something uh, through the gates of the Silver Key. So this is um, this is the kind of sort of subtleties. Like, what is this key? And what when it turns out that door opens the um, the the gate use <laughs> opens the door using a a a false key that looks like the real key, and she opens it not to the place of heaven. Although she sends him across the universe, right? He, she is opening it for heaven. This is Gaiman is super smart, right? He instead of saying when Richard asks the angel, "Have you so you've met God?" He the angel doesn't say, "Yes, I've met God," right? He doesn't give an answer, he, he, and he says, "And you claim to be an angel?" And he says, "I claim nothing, but I am an angel," 
right? He's having his cake and eating it too, Gaiman is, right? Mm -hmm. He's saying God exists and also there's no way of knowing. (laughs) (laughs) He's so, he's so clever and he, he sucks you in and, and yeah, he's obsessed with angels. Uh, There's another one uh, of his stories, an audio drama. Um, uh, It's, I think it's murders in the title. It's 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 a murder mystery set. Oh, it's called Murder Mysteries. That's what it is. It's the first murder mystery. It's set in heaven, um, and uh-huh. one angel murdered another angel. Right? We don't, which angel did the murdering? And uh, Brian Dennehy, the actor, plays the investigating angel. It's a like a hard boiled angel detective story. Have you heard this, Misa? No. I'm gonna have to send it to you, Paul. Have you heard this one? I've I've not heard this one. I mean. Angels from seeing your theater. Yeah, Angels of Detectives reminds me of um, something more than Night by Ian Tregillis, where you basically have an angel who down on Earth who's acting as a and and looks like a noir private eye, and also to Rain in Hell, which has a sort of same sort of a mystery involved up in heaven and how and why Satan wound up falling. So but I've mm. never actually heard of this one. You should, you should send it to me too. Well, I might want to. Get I will send it to you. Yeah, it's 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 on the internet somewhere. But um, it was paired up with another one, uh, Snow Glass Apples, which is a retelling of Snow White. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've heard that. That's a really good story as well. That stars uh, BB Newworth, who's really mm-hmm. yeah, that's, she's a yeah. great actress, and also she's really great in this. Yeah. Um, really, really great audio dramas. Anyways, um. I, I, I just want to point out that, yeah, there's another Lovecraft connection in, in that she sends them using the false silver key to, uh, that is, um, the Mar- not the Marquis. He sends... Uh, the in- Islington and Krupp and Vandemar. Islington. Yeah. Uh, by the way, Angel at Islington, this is, re- like, these are all real places, right? Yeah. In mm-hmm. London. Um sends him to what did Richard call it? He said it hell. It looks like hell. It also yes, looks like opposite. a black hole. Outer right? space. Yes. Something far, space. far away. Yeah. Gravity is pulling them out. Right. Yeah. Um, so whatever's going on there, it's very Lovecraftian. And the, 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 this is um, a number of Lovecraft stories are about travel through space and the horrible things you can find there mm-hmm. out, out there and uh, half a universe away. Um, and thinking about uh, Valdemar and Krupp and uh, the angel all, you know, stuck in the event horizon of a black hole. Ah, that's pretty good punishment, right? Yeah. Um, maybe too it, strong. It, it, it may not even kill them. No, it's I not mean, too strong. It may not no, even not kill them strong. because they're pretty, they're pretty tough. That's they right. might be stuck there forever on the event horizon. Yes. That would yes. be a fitting end for those two. Yes. Well, it, um, yeah, maybe a little harsh. Um, <laughs> no, they're they're they're, you know, they're murderous. They're murderous bastards. Yeah, they've been murdering through the ages. That's true. But, uh, um, I, I I don't. Yeah, but I'm not for capital punishment. So well, they're in purgatory. How's that? Okay. Well, that's um, that's but that's where the angel was was anyways, right? He was in a kind of back. Yeah. The purgatory stuck there, right? Um, uh, his his idea when he says, "Sorry, I just I, I must dominate the conversation." Um, I want to say that when the angel says, "This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to be rewarding all my my uh, my the people who deserve it when I get into heaven." Right? Mm-hmm. Um, there's that's, a little that's bit people he's hired. 
Yes, and you know he's almost making the case that yeah, and Richard, you're going to get what you want. Doris going to get you what she wants. You get your sister back, maybe, right? Um, that is all. It's kind of yeah, yeah. I can, yeah, maybe it's not that bad. Maybe he's just he's, but, he's going to overthrow God for crying. Yeah, out loud. he's a big. He's worse than Lucifer. Yeah. I mean, he even says Lucifer was an idiot. So, so he mm-hmm. is definitely yeah. worse than Lucifer because he's got a plan. And well, that's because yeah, but he got yeah, it's because Lucifer ended up reigning in hell, right? Right. He wants to reign in heaven. I want to point out also the the wine, uh, wine a vintage from Atlantis. Atlantis. I believe that's yes. yes, Clark Ashton Smith story called a Vintage from Atlantis. Oh, I did not. Oh, I remember that? Yeah, nice. it's I very got, nice. Again, we 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 keenly miss Mr. Jim Moon's reference. Uh, Wrestlepedia brain here. Yeah, I'm sorry, I was cutting myself. Oh, I was going to say about about Paul's reference to there only being one reference to the key in the book. At mm-hmm. one point, though, um, when when Hunt when um, when Richard is going to go through the the labyrinth, uh, Hunter says, "Without the angel's token, you could never find your way and never get past the boar." Mm-hmm. But he had the the key. Would right. you not think that is the angel's token to God that got him through, like that got him through? I get well, and then when he gets the blood, yeah, I thought yeah, that yeah, was yeah, yeah, the blood. It's the same thing, right? The, yeah, but I mean, like to even be able to defeat the boar that nobody could defeat, he had the 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 key in his pocket. Oh, the key to all reality. I don't think that's actually made explicit text. No, but I'm not, it's not made explicit. But he did have it. He did. He, true. Did, he did have it all along. Maybe and, that's. And she did. She specifically said you need the like. She said that. Mm. Well, he, I think I think he's a hero. <laughs> he, becomes, he, he becomes a hero. He does what Hunter cannot do. And, and what does the sister say? The serpentine, serpentina, or whatever her name is. She says, uh, I've seen the look before. Yeah. He's a hero. And she says, he's not a hero. And he says, I'm yeah. not a hero. No, yes, I've seen the look right. before. Yeah. Um, he's, he's certainly performing the role of the hero, even though he feels more like an Arthur Dent character at the beginning. I'm, I'm afraid he is. You learn to recognize the type. Something in the eyes, perhaps, is what she says. Yes. <laughs> and, 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 and I know we're almost done. I just want to read what the, this list of things that Krupp and Vandemar have done. Sir, might I, with due respect, remind you that Mr. Vandermeer and I myself burned down the city of Troy. We brought the Black Plate to Flanders. We have assassinated a dozen kings, five popes, half a hundred heroes, and two accredited gods. <laughs> it's like... Accredited, that's important. Accredited gods. <laughs> My, yeah, and who hired them to do that? Was it uh-huh. Islington? No, I, I think uh, I think I, I think, think some of it might be them. recreation, recreation. No, I no, I think they. No, always, they're hi- they're for hire. They're, they're for hire. So other other powers and polities have definitely used their services. So if there are smooshed on the black holes of Event Horizon, good because they've done lots of bad things. Yes, but they're fun. And, and, and he, and he <laughs> broke a tank to industry cigarette and ate it. A crime against sculpture and art. I, I think that, that that that's the best piece of characterization in the book. I mean, right? he, he he looks at it, he talks about how he's loving it, how he how he knows who made yeah. it, and then he eats it. It's like, oh yeah. my god, you bastard! <laughs> and when the marquee threatens it with a tiny hammer, that um, that sets him off uh, right it, away. What you know, he he's he's horrified at the prospect of it being destroyed, right? But. <laughs> 
He eats it. Yeah, um, <laughs> he has to eat it whole. I mean, in pieces, it's yes. not the same thing. He wanted to enjoy it before he destroyed no, it. No, he, he, yeah, he, he needs to appreciate it. Yeah. There's nothing like it in the world, right? <laughs> and then he eats it. Oh my! I had to Google, I had to Google some Tang Dynasty figurines to look to see more examples after watching that. Uh huh. Just just to see how gorgeous they are, and some of them are really really gorgeous. So no they, doubt. They chose well. Well, um, I I I will just say one character we haven't touched on, and I think uh, we should do that before the end is uh, what's her name? Uh, Lamia, the velvet. Oh, Lamia. Yes. Yes. And then he says, uh, Richard says, this is Lamia. She's a Velcro. (laughs) (laughs) Did you Google Lamia? Uh, Yes, I did. And did you Google Lamia? I did. I knew what what Lamias were from Dungeons and Dragons. I I knew I'd forgotten. What what is Lamia in D&D? They're 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 basically seductive demon women who can charm people and steal their yeah. souls. Is that what you find? Uh, uh, I found female demon who devours children. Mm. Oh, young men especially, I believe. Um, uh, she uh, there, there's a whole bunch of um, associated things as you know. I, I was doing this yesterday with a student. We're going through a list of monsters that show up in. A, in a story, and one of them was Fawns, and the other one was um, Fawns, and uh, what's the other kind? Like a Fawn. <laughs> I can't remember now. Um, anyways, they're like Fawns. They're exactly not like Fawns. What, what was that? Is it not Satyr? Oh, yeah. Right, yeah. So what's the difference between a Fawn and a Satyr? Uh, really not much difference. Uh, well, they both have... <laughs> Uh, uh, a, 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 a satyr is more interested in sex than the fawn is. I mean, I, mean, I think that that's right. I, I mean, that I mean, it's like I mean, a fawn is a baby satyr. I, I, I mean, I mean, we meet a fawn in Narnia, and he's not into it, uh, into yeah. sex so much. Whereas a satyr definitely would have been. So yes, mm-hmm. yes, the mm-hmm. satyrs want to sate themselves. <laughs> yes, and the fawns just want to romp. They just want right. to romp. <laughs> um, but the, the the thing is, is Pan. Is a, is a satyr for all intents and purposes, and that's where all the satyrs come from, right? Is he's yeah. always having sex with like sheep, anything, and it's like yeah, pretty much everything, yeah, and that's why uh, he's the like in the old days, you know, their gods were really rough and they weren't embarrassed about talking about them, I think, because he's the god of shepherds, right? What are they doing out in those shepherds? Apparently, they're having sex with their sheep and making more fawns yeah. or something. Yeah. yeah, it's like what's going on here? But that's how that's it is. Um, it is amazing that he he just he he manages to create a world, even though he's burning through through characters and character names and character ideas incredibly quickly. The population of this novel of characters in London below is not more than a two dozen, I would guess. Right. So we meet a velvet. Her name is Lamia. There's going to be a fixed number of other uh, velvets with similar, you know, names to Carmilla or whatever references you've got. Anesthesia, when I heard that name, I was like, well, that's a weird name for a girl. But her story parallels Richard's, right? She was from London above. She didn't mm-hmm. start off uh, as a uh, person born into this world. And she fell through the she, cracks. She fell yeah. through the cracks. She transitioned. 
and she's eating his banana and then that line about do you like cats <laughs> no do you like cats <laughs> yes, i'm very fond of cats oh winger breast yes like, wow <laughs> yeah uh, oh and a half-eaten kitten shows up in one of those lists of descriptions yeah did you notice that yeah, I, yeah, I did yeah, in, in yeah. so yeah there's a dog there's a dog in one of the piles of um a dead beagle i think it is He's very specific about all the dead things that show up. Mm. Oh, I think this is terrific. Terrific, terrific. Well, Are we done? I think uh, we're done. Before we go, I want to yeah. tell you that whenever anybody asks me how old I am, from now on, I'm going to say as old as my tongue and a little <laughs> older than my teeth. Well, as old as my tongue and younger than my teeth. A little, a little older than my teeth. <laughs> That's good stuff. This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com.